Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I am joined by writer Brian Boyles, who is the Vice President of Content at the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities. There, he serves as publisher of No Louisiana and Louisiana Cultural Vistas magazine. His writing has been featured in numerous publications, and his first book, New Orleans Boom and Blackout, came out in 2015 and was named that year's One Book, One New Orleans selection. How are you doing today, Brian? I'm well. It's good to see you, Dave. Good to see you as well. So we're getting into this year here. I heard you have a new baby. Uh, how's that going for you? Uh, she is thriving. Everybody's doing what they're supposed to be doing, so... Uh... I can't complain, nor would I ever complain, as I'm not the one who gave birth. So exactly. I'm uh, ha happy to have her in the family. <laughs> That's the right answer. I, I practice. Well, fantastic, man. I'm glad to, to get to speak with you. Mm -hmm. It's been a couple of years since um, the 2015 One Book, One New Orleans sure. collection. Um, you have a new book that you worked out, uh, worked on out, New Orleans in the World, which is the tricentennial anthology. Uh, tell me a little bit about working on that and um, also the essays that you contributed to it. Sure. Uh, well, we were really fortunate in that uh, because of our track record with Louisiana Cultural Vistas, our quarterly magazine, uh, the New Orleans Convention and Visitors Bureau and New Orleans Tour Marketing Corporation had approached us to say that they were really looking to create um, something uh, that would be lasting, uh, looking at the tricentennial, something that would help them introduce outside groups to the city, really give a diverse uh, group of perspectives, and even something that they could give to the mayor to go out and sort of in an official fashion hand that to other mayors, people he's recruiting to come to the city in 2018. And so that we were able to get really good resources to create this project. Yeah. We were pretty short on time as to how we wanted to turn it around because we really wanted to have it available before 2018 so that it would be in stores and people would start to read it and get some momentum. And fortunately, uh, we were able to do that. It came out in November. Really, the process was amazing because we had the chance to work with just the top scholars in the field and uh, pulled together a scholarly board. Nancy Dixon at Dillard was our editor. We had an editorial board, Richard Campanella, Bobby DuPont, Kara Olage, Freddie Williams-Evans, and Larry Powell. So an amazing group to sit down with and just kind of kick around ideas. And uh, in doing that, we came up with this theme of New Orleans in the world. You know, we were quite certain that there was no way to do a book, nor we could afford to do a book. Uh, no way to end a book that was just comprehensive New Orleans. And we felt that just making a list of all things New Orleans wasn't necessarily the best contribution we could make. So New Orleans in the World emerged as a theme and really a filter uh, that we took with us when we went out to writers and scholars. So we really wanted to have them drive a lot of this and tell us what they thought was important. But under that umbrella, how has New Orleans influenced the world? How has world events uh, shaped New Orleans? And I think uh, that helped us suss out where we wanted to go. We organized it more around themes than in a chronological order. And I think the things that came out of it uh, continue to be um, thought-provoking to me after having put it together, but also reading it and thinking about the way, the, the world position of the city and how I, I just was talking to some folks about this the other day, how though, you know, we've had great ups and downs and certainly economically we're nowhere near a global capital of finance or, or trade as we might have been um, at different parts in our history, we still hold this interesting spot on the world stage. We sort of are a, a city as a performer that's out there, you know, creating storylines, good and bad, that people still gravitate towards. And so I, I've been thinking a lot more about what 
that relationship between New Orleans and the world is. And I think that uh, this book really brings a lot of insights to it. So we're uh, we're lucky to have so many great people in it to, to help shape that theme. No, I can imagine that. Just listening to the amount of people on that board, I cannot imagine being in that room with the amount of like smarts just coming from that table. That must yeah. have, what was that like for you, you know? It was fun, you know, you, you didn't uh, try and interrupt anyone. You yeah. tried to let it come out. And I think that uh, they, got it early on that this was going to be a big deal and i felt like they uh, placed some confidence in us because like i said we when we showed them what the timeline was going to be i think most folks with an experience like more academic anthologies thought you're you're crazy uh but we were really committed to doing that way and uh you know the cool thing was that by having that board they suggested so many other people each of them had so much experience reading about new orleans because we were turning around quickly we weren't really trying to assign scholars to reinvent the wheel you know a lot of it was based on a lot of work they had done and so again just to hear these folks talk about you know who was good and who really sparked their imagination about the city i think was great and i think that uh you really realize that and this was a group of people that wanted to make sure we got it right. Yeah. And I think we were lucky in that our partners at the CVB were also interested in that. You know, it wasn't an idea that we were going to only do the happy, fun New Orleans. They wanted some, they wanted real depth to it. And they even participated in editorial meetings to really hear where we were going with it. And mm. I think that that was a good experience for people on all sides of the table to go through. No, it's great. I love having these books. I mentioned to you before we started this about having Unfathomable City. Mm -hmm. Uh, This book really reminds me of that because of having that anthology of very much of the moment, trying to bring all these things together, all these voices. I I really love that. And it's really a great document to have. Um, Having worked on this project, having written for this project Mm -hmm. and being in our 300th year, uh, is there any certain topic that really kind of piqued your interest while working on this that you're like delving into more now or really focusing on during this year? Well, I think that there's a lot of things that we know didn't get into the book, yeah. so we're trying to fill in a lot of those gaps. Uh, uh, I think specifically to you know my interests and related to what I said about the theme, I'm very interested in these pe- points when the city tried to sort of get itself together in order to be present for the rest of the world. As we're doing to a degree every day, but really looking at things like the 1884 World's Fair, the 1984 World's Fair, uh, the Super Bowl in 2013, you know, moments when we were really trying to send a message about ourselves. I think you learn a lot about the city by seeing it do that. So uh, I recently gave a talk on the 1884 Cotton Expo, and I think drilling down to that that time period is something I'd like to do more of. Similarly, though, with the 84 World's Fair, um, I think the 1980s, the 70s and 80s are a fascinating thing to look at, and I've been wanting to kind of get my arms around that. We have a great essay in there by Jack Davis about you know, the the rise of Porter Street and then the eventual kind of fall with the oil bus. So I think yeah. that period right there has interested me for a while. And I think looking at that as a time when the city had certain aspirations and having, I think, come out of a recent period where we have a lot of aspirations about where the city could or, or could not go. Um, I, I like that idea of, of looking at New Orleans when it dreams about itself and where it's going to go, or who it's going to catch up to and, and what it might be. I think that that's um, really telling, you know, and, and certainly a great place for writing of all kinds. Yeah, no, I get that. I think that's really interesting. I, I myself am very interested in that mm-hmm. point because I think it describes our current predicaments in a way that we really haven't mind yet because it has mm-hmm. been too close until now. Good point. Um, but I'm interested to see more writing coming out about that. Are you yeah. working on anything? Uh, trying, man. Um, but you know, uh, as people that run magazines will tell you, it's very hard to get much done. Um, but yeah, there are a few things I'm, I'm trying to work on and I think that, um, at the same time, looking for other people who are writing about those subjects and, and want to help publish them and make sure that there's as many uh, 
scholars working on fields that, frankly, I'm interested in yeah. and I think that are relevant. I get that. Uh, you mentioned working on a magazine, Louisiana mm-hmm. Cultural Vistas, as well as No Louisiana, the mm-hmm. other web component to that. Yeah. Uh, how did you start doing that? And, and tell me about some things that are going on there right now. Sure. Uh, you know, I've been at the LEH for, I guess, 11 years now. And uh, at the same time, you know, I, I worked in publishing before that. I've done freelance writing for a long time, and it was also running our grants program. And in 2014, we decided to uh, sort of restructure some things in order to make the magazine work more in lockstep with the grants that we did, and then also the programs that we produced at the Louisiana Humanities Center, but also around the state. And so just ensuring that the content that we generate and fund ends up in the magazine, and that necessarily we may even be able to create programs out of things we find out through the magazine. So that's where we kind of put them all under the same umbrella. Uh, and, you know, I think what we've tried to do more and more of is really document work that shows us why the humanities are important today. Uh, and similarly to what we were just saying, you know, history that we feel like is is easily seen through the present as being something we might uh, add to our critical eye. You know, things that we think uh, are important um, in the past that may have consequences right now that we can look back on and and use to better steer ourselves through the present. Uh, we're also working on a big coastal initiative, um, you know, really trying to get our hands around what it means for communities in the state, not just the loss of land, but also the attempts to rebuild land or relocate people or prepare for the next storm. I think that a great deal of work is being done right now on the engineering side of that um, and catching up on the people side of it was where we thought we could actually have a good role. And in doing that, um, I funded some documentary films and are bringing an exhibition down from the Smithsonian in June. So it's that kind of package where we're, we're, we're doing magazine articles that also live online. Uh, commissioning filmmakers to make films that will then be a part of this traveling exhibition. And I think that that was, that was our goal a couple of years ago was to really be able to, you know, with limited resources that there are these days or any days for, for cultural pursuits to maximize that by lining those things up and saying that, you know, we can come at this problem from a couple of different ways. And, you know, the LEH has for a long time uh, been a funder of traveling exhibitions and specifically this partnership with the Smithsonian which has this year a theme of water. This is a natural, and this theme is set nationally by the Smithsonian, but we really wanted to make sure that a, a statewide tour of Louisiana talked about the coast. Yeah. To do that, creating articles that could be used to the exhibition, creating films that could be used in discussions, that's how we really wanted to get behind it. And I think we continue to look for other issues like that, that, that Louisiana is facing where we could say that the humanities can play a role. Um, certainly we can't play a role. We could play a role in everything. I think it's finding the ones that are the most important to the state and yeah. talking to those communities and figuring out what's important to them um, is, is, is certainly uh, the process for us. No, I get that. And, and as far as what's the state of the exhibition right now, uh, what are, do you have any dates for when it's going to be in Sure, Orleans, it's going to start in June. It actually goes to communities of 20,000 or less. Uh, oh, so wow. it's targeting rural audiences. And we've been uh, doing this project with different tours with the Smithsonian for about 15 years. And so the idea is to really build up the capacity of these museums and libraries to hold, you know, world-class uh, content. Uh, so the first one is in June. It starts uh, down at the Zion Traveler Center yeah. um, uh, down near Braithwaite and uh, then moves every six weeks to a different place. So I can't remember exactly the order, but I know that it goes to Generet, goes up to Columbia, uh, it goes to Jennings and... Denham Springs, 
Um, so they each receive funds from the LEH uh, to create public programs. It's all free. And we were lucky to have some support from the Walton Family Foundation to get that done. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Man. That's exciting. That's yeah. really exciting. Yeah, it's a good project. Um, mentioning kind of cultural aspects, uh, one of the things that got me excited for this interview was to revisit your 2015 book, uh, Boom and Blackout. Sure. Um, and reading through that introduction and talking about the idea of the economics of culture and your fascination with that, uh, being the end of the Landrew tenure, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about what's changed since you wrote that book, uh, and where do you think New Orleans is moving as far as our focus on culture and the tourism and gentrification, all the things that are wrapped up in that conversation? Sure. Uh, uh, in short, you know, give me a, <laughs> a, you know, a 60 second answer. Of exactly. Course. Yeah. That's all I, that's all I want to take. Uh, you know, I think that, um, in some ways, finishing that book to me was the finishing of a long thought process that I had had. And so I do sort of always preface things by saying that I, I don't feel as tuned in as I was when the book was finished. You know, I've since then had children. I've worked on the stuff through LEH. We work really statewide. And so my finger is not as close to the pulse of New Orleans as it was when I was sort of chasing things down all the time writing that book. Yeah. And I think it's important to say that because we can all choose to be as active and engaged as we want to. And if it's getting to be too much for us, we can always step back and enjoy the weather. Uh, but I think that the reason that I wanted to write that book was because I knew that the Super Bowl was going to provide this stage for the mayor and, uh, and other folks to talk about the recovery. And as it turned out, to talk about the recovery as in this recovery is over. We're now in this, whatever we want to call it. Yeah. Uh, and looking back and, and certainly the lights going out in the dome um, sort of prefigured this. Uh, I think that that was a high point, you know, intent. And I don't know that it was an intentional high point, but I think if you look back at uh, the momentum that was going there and, and specifically around federally funded projects, uh, the people moving to the city and the uh, the film industry really driving a lot of uh, expenses and also attention to the city in a good way. Um, you really saw that as now looking back, you know, not necessarily to say we peaked, but I think that the buzz was as high as it was going to be then. In the years since then, I think that it's not that any, you know, grand disaster has happened since. I certainly think that in the environmental concern has become uh, more acute. And I think more people in New Orleans, especially with the flooding we've had and the flooding in Baton Rouge and just the overall thinking around the coast, have more of a sense that, you know, there's this larger thing that really needs to be addressed that can't simply be a matter of New Orleans appearing in commercials and things like that. And I think that the affordability issue became much more of a visible one for everyone in the last couple, in the last few years. Um, so that, you know, whatever kind of, was being generated around that time of 2013, 2014. One thing that came out of it was it's a much less affordable city. Yeah. Um, and I think that a lot of people um, are upset about that. I don't have a solution to that. Um, I feel it for sure. Uh, and I think that it continues the pressures that were on culture barrows that I documented, you know, and probably even to a worse degree. You know, at that point, a lot of people were still really up in arms around noise ordinances, you know, and um, attempts to, you know, redevelop the French Quarter in certain ways. And I think that's certainly still a part of the conversation. And again, I'm not as tuned into the conversation as I was, but I think this affordability thing on top of all that, you know, when you look at, as I did in the book, the hurdles for a brass band member to make a living, stay safe, be appreciated by the city, all of that. Then you throw on top of that 
you know, the fact that it's very hard for him if he has a couple of kids to find a place to rent. Um, that's a whole other layer. And I do think people are doing some good work around that, um, for sure. Um, I don't think that things like Airbnb were as big of a concern when I was writing that book, you yeah. know, and, and I think that's a, that's a major force in what's happened here. Um, so again, as to where we are today, you know, there's a good part of me after that book and after doing New Orleans in the world, it feels like to some degree we're all where we always are. You know, it, it's a great place, but it's also a very difficult place and maybe more people than ever feel that pain. Yeah. And some of it because they've invested so much money in it, whereas most people were feeling that pain were on the lower end of the spectrum for a long time. Um, but in any case, I think that, uh, you know, as far as the administration and trying to look back on, you know, eight years, that would be a really good book for somebody to read. Yeah. And write. You know, I mean, I really think <laughs> I, I've, 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 I've felt then, I felt in 2010, I, I felt now that, you know, Mayor Landry's, he's a fascinating historical character, it, it, whether or not you're concerned with the larger sort of national politics, but really even just looking at the history of the city, the history of his family, really continues to interest me and to see where he goes and to see again where history will look back. You know, a lot of my work started when we did a project on the mayors of New Orleans right before Mayor Landry was elected. And, and we ran all the way through Mayor Nagin. Um, and, you know, we did that project all the way up to like a week or so before the election, looking at different mayors. And I think the thing that really came out um, with each of them was that uh, when their defenders, you know, were present, it was that there was signature large capital projects. Yeah. You know, there was a budget turnaround. Everybody turned the budget around. Yeah. You know, um, and I think that, and City Hall worked better. You know, that's what everybody tried to say, I think. And I think that's probably what you would say right now, right? But it's going to take a few years to be able to say, did it all work better? You know, does the next mayor come in and find that the budget is a-okay the way we think it kind of is? Yeah. Um, and what were the capital projects? You know, what were the publicly funded capital projects? Those mm -hmm. drainage things, but a lot of stuff was private. You know, a lot of stuff was things like the Hyatt or Champion Square, stuff like that. Um, what that all looks like. And I think then overlaid on all of that, you know, the the crime issue is the crime issue. I, I don't, I don't know the need. I don't see the needle seems about where it is, you know? And yeah. so again, not as informed as I'd like to be. Um, but I definitely think someone needs to, uh, to, to put this in the, in a good perspective. Cause it's, uh, it, it, I think I remain glad that I wrote the book because I learned how to write better, but also because I do think that was a time worthy of documenting. I don't think it was simply my whimsy yeah. was right. You know, I think that, that that was an interesting time. Um, and I think we'll always look back at that and be able to, to have a better sense of where the city was going, moving out of would have been a really horrible period. Yeah, you know? no, exactly. Uh, that's interesting. You you were right in the middle as well as on the cusp of so many things. Uh, reading your first chapter again, talking about the uh, the taxi cab strike, uh, and now that's even before the um, the Uber There's and no Lyft. Uber back then. Yeah, no, just like that completely just disoriented that conversation hey. to a point of just like not even being. You it's know? wild, huh? It just yeah. yeah, yeah. I think about that too. That's that's crazy. Yeah. Um, uh, you mentioned that mayoral, New Orleans mayoral history that you did. Uh, how did you end up deciding to do that project, especially, did you do it 2008? When when did you start that? I guess the election was in 2010, 2010? so we did 2009 into 2010. Okay. Usually when I think back on it, I realize I didn't really know any better. Yeah. And I was fortunately given the space to do it. Um, and we had opened the Humanities Center not that long before that. So I was, uh, you know, again, really lucky to be given uh, the opportunity to do programming, um, especially during those years when I think public forums needed to be happening and were happening all the time, but not necessarily always 
in a way that was super respectful or neutral, you know, and I think that the LEH for its successes and challenges, you know, had a reputation as being politically neutral. And I certainly wasn't known by anybody. So <laughs> it wasn't a matter of me asking folks to participate and then thinking that, you know, I had an agenda. And yeah. I think that's why we were able to pull together the people we were. But the genesis of it really was a feeling that, and I had this feeling, I had gone to college here, but then I had left and moved back about a year after Katrina, was that uh, your average person who had moved here since the storm, who at that point would were just being praised to high heaven and seen as this driver of the new economy and the new politics and a new society, they probably didn't have much of an education on the political history of the city and that that's good equipment to have as you go into a voting booth. Uh, I'd been kind of lucky because working at the LH those first couple of years, I had learned a lot of that history and I was interested in it. And so the real motivation for doing the project was to say, okay, people are going to show up asking you for their vote. They may play on all kinds of different interests that you have. One of those could be a feeling that as a newcomer, you might need to join this tribe or that tribe, or, or that this issue or that issue is a new issue, or one that's not fixable. Let's go back and look at each of these administrations, starting with Shep Morrison after the Second World War, and talk to people who were, in most cases, there, who covered them, who have studied them, to figure out want a sort of job description for what the mayor is and does, right? Because I think that's something that's always necessary. And we tried that a few years ago with Louisiana governors as well um, to really just say, look, a mayor does this, you know, and as I said, capital projects, that could be a big part of what he or she does. Uh, finances, that's a big part of he or she does. And then this more sort of charismatic role of being out there as the face of the city, which frankly, I think that at that point, you know, uh, Mayor Nagin had really receded a little bit um, under a, a lot of criticism and for all kinds of different reasons. But we didn't have a recent experience with what a mayor of New Orleans did. Yeah. You know, we'd had this real lightning rod person and, and a government that, you know, was pretty kneecapped by everything that had happened. So uh, we, uh, you know, brought those people together, I guess, every two weeks, uh, every mayor all the way up through Mayor Nagin. And, uh, and, and brought in good people to moderate and ask the questions. But, you know, some of our questions as we, as we evolved it were really uh, answered just in a program that we would give for each one, which was, you know, this is how many people lived here at the time. Yeah. This is what the racial breakdown was. This is like a timeline of the things that happened there. Certainly people had done that. You know, but I think that it was a it was a nice way to frame everything because there were always misconceptions about, you know, what the city looked like in 1970. Yeah. Uh, and I think that getting that getting to sit there and watch and really to be active in putting those panels together and and seeing the threads that connected them all, amazing experience. And the turnout I think helped put the space on the map. And I think it also to me affirmed that creating histories that did have a direct relevance. Um, and I think that certainly uh, with Boom and Blackout, that kind of arrangement was, it influenced the structure of how I wrote um, yeah. the book is uh, I thought that, you know, people could be given anecdotal stuff about history in New Orleans and, and draw their own conclusions. Yeah. And I think that's important. And you're providing constraints for yourself as a writer as well, uh, which is totally. useful. Yeah. Yes. Because um, yes. uh, you, you mentioned in the introduction for Boom and Blackout, just being there's so much to kind of draw on and trying to hone in. It's almost impossible to kind of uh, incorporate into some sort of coherent narrative. And mm -hmm. I think what you kind of did that 101 day structure uh, was, was kind of brilliant in a way and really admirable. I, thanks. I think that uh, I, otherwise it never would have got done. Yes, you know? there, there is that yeah. as well. Like, it's just, I have to do this thing. How mm -hmm. can I do this thing? 
Um, exactly. What's your What's your optimal writing environment? I mean, you do uh, still a lot of writing for the magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, what What if in an ideal sense, obviously uh, journalism and articles, you are in more of a time rush most of the time. But like, yeah. if you uh, could have an optimal environment, what would it be? Oh man, that's a great question. I think that uh, you know, I usually try to uh, be at a desk. And that could either be if I get away and go to a coffee shop or I'm in my house once everybody is asleep. I think that that's usually the best time for me. It's hard for me to write at my office at LEH that I've been trying to train myself to do that just to save time. And I'm struggling with a piece right now because I'm trying to do that. Um, You know, I always found it it was uh, interesting when I lived in New York, I rode on the train all the time. Um, And a lot of times not legibly or anything that was worth anything. But there was something in that in that building up the ability to do that, to sort of wall myself in while being in this super public place, to just observe, you know, and play with words as that was going on, um, and then to try and do something with it afterwards that I think both could have been time better spent doing other types of writing, but at the same time gave me the ability to, uh, you know, write on the fly, you know, take notes on the fly that were worthwhile, really be a good observer. I did for about a year, uh, covered the Horn- the then Hornets and sat baseline for those games. And writing there was very interesting because um, you're kind of just writing what would essentially be Twitter now. Yeah. Um, but you're, you're surrounded by like 20,000 screaming people. You know, it's a very interesting <laughs> uh, feeling. And, and again, I, I guess all those things made me prepare felt like I was prepared to go out into the city and do the kind of note taking I wanted, but for actually really good writing. Yeah. I need all my stuff, you know, like I need to feel comfortable. I need to have headphones on. I need to have a lot of different things to drink. Um, Coffee, water, tea, yeah, like selection, whiskey, yeah. you know, I don't, I, you know what? I don't really drink alcohol too much when I write anymore. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, definitely was a big part of what it was about when I was younger, <laughs> but no, I think that, uh, also, I find that the struggle that I find is like uh, the platforms we use now give us so many opportunities to have your stuff everywhere. And mm-hmm. you should just be and you think that just writing stuff in a cloud somewhere is your is like the answer to that. But you can have 15 different clouds, too. Yeah. So I'm really uh, I need to get it together a little bit on some of this stuff. And, and I think interacting like with an editorial team and stuff with the magazine is an interesting process because in the end you know, I need to keep the deadlines that, that I set. <laughs> yeah. so I wish that sometimes there was someone else setting them. And, and, and our senior editor, editor Ann Glaviano, does a good job of that. But I think, again, I need to, uh, I, I need to keep working on it. No, I understand sure. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the eternal struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, well, tell me, tell me this. One thing I, I love to ask people is, um, what exactly are you reading right now? Sure. And also, uh, what's one piece of art? Could be a film, uh, a painting, whatever, that, that's really affected you in the last year? Well... I uh, just got back. I was over in uh, Lafayette uh, this weekend uh, doing some site visits. And then on Sunday, went to St. Landry Parish near Opelousa's, uh the convention or the, the visitor center there. They unveiled a um, statue of Amade Ardwan, the, uh, really the founding voice in uh, Cajun Creole music, um, who was tragically beaten um, in the 1920s and, and, and ending his career and then buried um in an unmarked grave in Pineville near the sanitarium there. And uh, poet Daryl Bork and really a great coalition of people brought, uh, were fighting to bring his remains back. That wasn't possible, but they were able to raise money to commission a statue. And so I went to the unveiling of that statue on Sunday and, you know, you ask, you know, a great piece of art. I think that was a great piece. It's a great piece of art. And the, and the name of the sculpture keeps uh, slipping my mind. 
the audience was also a great vision, you know, to see the diversity of the audience there, which I think, I think St. Landry Parish is a very diverse place. I think in Acadiana to see that kind of crowd though, is a big deal for folks there. And uh, that, that was an amazing piece of art. As far as what I've been reading, man, I read a, uh, I read an amazing piece about uh, Manafort, about Paul Manafort in the Atlantic. The Atlantic? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That um, was really amazing. Um, so that was good. Uh, and then I thought that, uh, I thought Nathaniel Rich's recent book was really great, um, King Zeno. And I'm trying to think, you know, you just read so much. It's, it's amazing how much we read these days. Yeah. Um, I think I've been reading uh, Jack Davis's The Gulf for a while mm -hmm. um, and uh, not quite finished with that, but um, that's a heck of a book. Okay, cool. Yeah. That's, that's a good answer right there. Well, I, I think I've kept you long enough, uh, but before we go, mm -hmm. um, thoughts on the Saints for this upcoming season? Oh, man, I wish I was more in tune. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I see the tricentennial year as being the perfect year to make a run for the Super Bowl. All right, that may look good yeah. last year. We'll, we'll take that, we'll take <laughs> I that. I thought that was going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> They've got magic. All right, Brian, well, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be here. That was author Brian Boyles, and you've been listening to the Writers Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. You can catch our show every Thursday at 3 p.m. as well as on Sundays at 8.30 a.m. All of WRBH's interviews are found on our SoundCloud page where they're archived, and the address for that is soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.